Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the city that elected its first female mayor in its 300-year history, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which may not be the center of the universe, but it is the geographic center of the state of Arkansas. Thank you for joining us for Episode 8. Tonight, we'll be discussing the case against Larry Swearingen, who was convicted in 2000 of the rape, abduction, and murder of Melissa Trotter. Since his conviction, Swearingen has received five execution dates, all of which have been stayed due to Swearingen's post-conviction claims. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, you say Little Rock isn't the center of the universe, but I mean, I think to us Arkansans it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. It, I'm getting. Uh, I'm getting few and far between on these fun facts about Arkansas. So, but I thought that was cool that it is the geographic center of the state. Fun fact about Arkansas, we beat LSU, uh, I believe it was four out of six years at one point. Yeah, but not last year. Yeah, not last year, unfortunately. <laughs> but we don't have <laughs> So, yeah. Last year, so, we'll, we'll see November. in November. Yeah, Pardon? we'll see in November. Again. We'll see in November. See who gets the boot. Yeah, unfortunately, they moved it. It's just not the same since they moved it to early November, but, you know, we deal with it. Right. Well, yeah, I used to like it on Thanksgiving. Yeah, absolutely. So. That was the game you circled and waited for all year. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Almost as much fun as uh, they used to have the LSU-Tulane games, but I don't think LSU and Tulane have played in years. Yeah, it's been a while, I believe, since the last time I saw LSU play uh, Tulane. Uh, and I believe usually they played in the Superdome. I know, uh, I know, uh, I want to say it was 
I want to say it was uh, usually played in the Superdome, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And I, I, I got to go to that. I believe it's been about I got 10 to, years. Yeah, it has. I got to go to that game, I think, two years when I was in high school. And my friend and I spent the whole game with binoculars looking at the players' butts. Oh, so we, neither one of us was interested in the game. <laughs> but it was one of the years they one of the years they didn't bring Mike the Tiger down. So we didn't get to see Mike. Oh wow. I thought they yeah. drug Mike ever. Well, they did it. Uh, they did it a few years. That those particular two years, for some reason, they didn't bring him. And then another year, when they brought him, there was a snowstorm, and they had to try and get back from New Orleans to Baton Rouge. Oh wow! And the other funny thing is, my friend went to LSU, and Mike <laughs> Four hated her. Oh, really? As soon as she came near his enclosure, he would start growling and snarling and carrying on, and she could never figure out why, because she was a cat person. <laughs> Maybe he could so, smell the other cats on her. I don't know, because she was the only one he ever did it to. He was a real social cat. And right. uh, he, but she was the only one he's ever done, and I've never seen Mike Six or Mike Seven have that kind of reaction to anybody. Right. I'm so. gonna say uh, now, mind you, I've only known LSU, you know, since I've been alive. But Mike's always been described as, you know, a friendly, nice, uh, well, for a tiger, obviously, you know, limited, mm-hmm. limited exposure to the you know, general population, but Mike's always been described as a pretty nice, you know, carefree animal. They, Mike, Mike Four was a, was a bit cantankerous. He escaped mm-hmm. once. And the vet oh. who took care of him at the time told people if he'd had a chance, he would have gotten me. But luckily he didn't get a mm-hmm. chance. But Mike 5, Mike 6, and Mike 7 were rescues, and they were hand-raised as cubs. And I think that really helped their ability to bond with people. Mm-hmm. So, um, and Mike 6 and Mike 7, God bless Dr. David Baker. He just does a great job finding these tigers that need a good home and they adore him. And it's so cool to see. That's so. awesome. That's awesome. To hear. All right. Well, and enough about Mike the tiger. <laughs> so we're going to talk uh, about Larry Swearingen tonight. Yeah. Let's talk about Mr. Swearingen. Uh, I see here we got that online, you know, as usual for our show prep. But, uh, you know, I see you're starting here at the beginning uh, where Swearigan met Melissa Trotter. Let's, you know, pick up right there. Uh, what's the deal here between him and Melissa? 
Well, he met Melissa at a convenience store in uh, Willis, I believe it's in Willis, Texas, uh, in on November, I mean, December 6, 1998. Um, mm-hmm. They spent a couple of hours talking. He gave her his pager number. They made some plans for the next day. And then they, you know, parted ways. Well, later in the story, we'll find that Swearingen's version of this meeting is not what happened. Um, then on the 7th, Melissa apparently canceled their plans to meet that day, which angered Swearingen, and, and several of his coworkers testified he was very angry the rest of the day after that happened. That night, he was uh, with Brian Foster, and he received a page from Melissa, and he told Foster that he was having Melissa for lunch if everything went well the next day. And then when they got to the Fosters' home, he used their phone to call Melissa back, and he told the Fosters he was meeting with Melissa Trotter on December 8th for lunch. The next day, Melissa leaves for school, She had plans with her family that night because her brother was in the military and was home for a visit. And so she had plans with her family that night. She went to school. She had a study prep uh, session. And she also had a friend of hers, Nicole Bailey, who gave her a piece of paper with Nicole's name and phone number on it so that Melissa could call her later. Um. Then she finished the study session. She went to the uh, cafeteria and got some tater tots and left there between noon and 1, 1 p.m. Um, she had a review session that she left at 1.15, and she told the instructor that she had to meet somebody um, when she left. And she was seen talking to a man in the computer lab. The man was described as tall and heavy set and the witnesses all identified Swearingen as the man Melissa was talking to. Later, about 1.30, he and Melissa were seen walking out of the campus together and Melissa's car stayed in the parking lot and she was never seen alive again. Uh, She was observed by her biology teacher with Swearingen, yeah. Oh, 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 Larry Swearingen gets creepier, trust me. Um, at 2.05 p.m., Swearingen called a girl by the name of Sarah Searle, and he told her that he was in a real big hurry, and he'd have to call her back because he was at lunch with a friend. That call, according to cell towers, was located or near the Montgomery College campus. So this is when he's leaving campus with Melissa. At 3 p.m., the landlord saw uh, Swearingen's truck leaving his trailer. At 3.03 p.m., Swearingen placed another call from his cell phone. I think he was using his stepfather's cell phone. The cell tower data for that call places him on FM 1097. FM stands for Farm to Market. A lot of roads in Texas are called farm to market. 
1097, okay. and that is that is consistent with the route from Swearingen's trailer to Sam Houston National, National Forest. At 4 p.m., Swearingen was paged by his wife. He didn't return that call until 4.25 p.m., and the cell tower data for that call placed him near the trailer. Um, he picked up his wife and daughter, and they got back to the trailer about 5.30 to 6 p.m. When they go in, the trailer looks like it's been ransacked, and there's a pack of Marlboro lights and a red lighter sitting on the TV. Marlboro lights are the brand of cigarettes that Melissa Trotter smoked. Swearingen and his wife didn't smoke, and the red lighter, she had a red lighter. Um, so... Uh, also, there was a, a stamp on the cigarette pack that indicated it was purchased at a store near the Montgomery College campus. At 7.09 p.m., Swearingen tells a friend of his named Phyllis Morrison that he is in some kind of trouble and police might be looking for him. And that was another cell call. The data for that places it on I-45 using a cell tower that overlapped with that Sam Houston National Forest area where Melissa's body was found. At 8.05 p.m., Swearingen contacted police to report a burglary in his trailer. This is to explain the ransack condition when he and his wife got home. And he told police that he had been out of town from December 7th at 7.30 p.m. to December 8th at 7.30 p.m., and so that's basically a false report, lying about his alibi, and he also claimed a, a, a VCR and a jet ski were stolen, but he had put the jet ski in a shop to be repaired. So we can establish pretty much right here that Larry Swearingen and the truth are often not acquainted with one another. Absolutely, absolutely. So... Uh, you know, we talk about Swergen. What were his statements regarding everything once he, you know, once everything, once she became missing? Before we find out she's dead, what did Larry do? Did Larry, you know, keep a low profile? What was the thought? Mm-hmm. Or what was his actions? Not really. The night, the, the night she, she goes missing, he calls in a false burglary report and claims an alibi of being out of town. Then the next day, either on the 9th or the 10th, Brian Foster and his wife hear about Melissa being missing. They contact Swearingen. Initially, Swearingen says, oh, no, the girl's name was Childers or Childress or something like that. Uh, Foster's wife says, no, you said her name was Melissa Trotter. And now Melissa Trotter's missing. And Swearingen hangs up the phone on her. So he's trying to distance himself. And now, you know, he's trying to claim people that know he was meeting with Melissa Trotter. He's trying to tell them, oh, no, no, I wasn't meeting with Melissa Trotter. Um, there's There's a concept called consciousness of guilt. If you flee a jurisdiction after a crime, that's consciousness of guilt. 
when you lie about your alibi or whereabouts or even committing the crime in, at all, that's also consciousness of guilt. And so even in those first two days before her body's ever found, uh, he's, you know, he's lying about where he saw her, when he saw her, whether he saw her at all. So Swearingen is uh, arrested in pretty short order if I'm, you know, following the timelines of timeline of events. Before Melissa's right. body is found, he originally arrested just with, like, her disappearance, or what's he charged with? Well, no. Actually, again, this is, this is one of those uh, examples of where Swearingen is more or less his own worst enemy and the best witness against himself. On December 11th, he told an acquaintance that he anticipated he would be arrested soon. Uh, a plainclothes detective named Scott Davis was investigating Melissa's disappearance, and he had gone to the convenience store where Larry and Melissa met on uh, December 6th to get their store surveillance footage. He saw Swearingen's truck, and he knew Swearingen was a suspect or a person of interest or somebody they needed to talk to. And so he was radioing in uh, that he saw Swearingen at the convenience store, maybe asking for somebody to come meet him to, for them to talk to Swearingen together. And when Swearingen sees him using the radio, he takes off and leads the police on a high-speed chase which ends at his parents' house. Um, and he was arrested that day, not in relation to Melissa, but for outstanding warrants. I think it was for traffic citations. Oh, wow. So, okay. yeah, so he oh. was arrested and booked on those. That that's yeah. just you know happened pretty good uh, turn of events for the police as far as that goes. So Swearingen hasn't been arrested for the murder or anything. What Correct. is the outlook as soon as the body's found? Obviously, you know they know it turns into a murder case rather than a missing person. But when did the right? Well, the, when Swearingen was arrested, he told police that he and Melissa talked for five minutes. He gave her his number, and that was it, which was they knew to be untrue because they had the surveillance from the uh, convenience store that showed them talking for, I think, two hours. Um, and then also officers, officers observed red marks on Swearingen's neck, cheek, ear, hairline, back, and shoulders. And he was photographed. Those red marks were photographed. uh, And they resembled scratch marks. They could have been from Melissa, and they also could have been from where her body had been placed in the forest. So... uh, Nothing much happens. He's in jail on December 11th, after December 11th. Then on January 2nd, Melissa's body was found. Um, she was still wearing the same clothing that she was in when she disappeared on the 8th. Uh, there were signs her body had been dragged. 
and her right shoe was off and lying next to her, next to her body. And there was a nylon, the leg of a nylon stocking around her neck. She also had a sharp force injury to her neck and fungal growth on her body, on the external surfaces. And a lot of decompositional changes due to the length of time she'd been there. Um, on her, at her autopsy, they also found chicken and a form of potato in her stomach contents. And so we have her eating the tater tots within two hours of, be, of disappearing. And I didn't say it earlier, but uh, she and Swearingen had gone to a McDonald's and gotten Chicken McNuggets. Oh, wow. So she had eaten Chicken McNuggets and potatoes within two hours of her death, basically. And I think the stomach contents are the strongest best evidence to place her time of death. Right. Um, and her cause of death was due to uh, ligature strangulation. Also, the note she'd gotten from Nicole Bailey was still in her blue jean pocket. So there's no evidence that she was kept anywhere, held anywhere for 25 days between... December 8th and January 2nd when her body was found. And it's at that time that, that Swearingen was uh, charged with her murder. Okay. After okay. the body was found. So let's go ahead and get into his actions. You know, the false burglary, burglary report. That obviously is going to be his alibi. Am I wrong? Like, that's what he was trying to set up was an alibi for what he was doing at that, that time, was, right? Well, yeah, that was plan A of the alibi. Um, but, of course, I think Larry Swearingen is one of those people who doesn't think before he lies because telling the police he was out of town, his wife is going to bust that one right wide open. Because she knows he's not, he wasn't out of town. So then on January 9th, a friend of his, uh, let, me see, let me find her name. A friend of his visited him. Her name is Elise Ripley. And he was in the visiting room, and I guess the, they're talking through glass and speakers and a phone and, you know, whatever. I haven't ever been to jail or prison, but I've seen enough movies. And while they're talking, he writes a note and holds it up to the glass, gives her time to read the note, and then he destroys it. And on the note, he had requested that she provide him with a false alibi for December 8th. So, again, so that to say she right. was with him, and he wasn't at Montgomery College with Melissa Trotter. Okay. So what's the false alibi request then? Well, that's that's asking, and, and he's not he's not on the phone, or you know, directly speaking to her about a false alibi. What he's doing is he's writing a note: "Tell police I was with you on December eighth," holding it up to the glass, letting her read it, and then destroying it. 
so not only, you know, he's not only asking for a false alibi, he's doing it in a way or trying to do it in a way that won't get him caught. Because I think Larry Swearingen is, is, you know, good at trying to find a way to get away with stuff. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And he's definitely trying to get away with this. Now, what's this letter mm-hmm. that uh, be coming in? What's, what's the letter that he... He he had he gave his cellmate a guy that, by the name of Ronnie Coleman a letter that he asked it was written in Spanish and he asked Ronnie Coleman to copy the letter for him. He said he was writing to his grandmother who spoke Spanish and she could not read his handwriting, so he needed Ronnie Coleman to write this letter, copy this letter for him. Um. But uh, it was actually a letter that had was supposedly being written by a woman who witnessed Melissa Trotter's murder and was implicating someone by the name of Ronnie. And so at one point, Ronnie Coleman's like, well, why is, why is Ronnie in this letter? And Swearingen says, oh, I'm telling my grandmother about you. Uh, personally, I think that Swearingen was going to try and pin the murder on Ronnie Coleman because the letter right. would be in his handwriting, and his name's in the letter. So, uh, again, you know, very creative, but uh, kind of transparent, too. Right. And, you know, I, like I said, Larry Swearingen is the best witness against himself because he takes the letter after Ronnie Coleman finishes copying it, he sends it to his mother and he says, I got this in jail. It's got information about this murder. So the mother gives it to his stepfather who takes it to the Willis Police Department to be translated. Right. The translator looks at it, and first of all, it does contain details of Melissa's murder from someone claiming to have been present. So that's red flag number one. The translator said the letter was written with English grammatical structure into Spanish. So basically somebody who had never taken Spanish and didn't speak Spanish got a Spanish to English dictionary and wrote a letter and then literally translated it, which if you've ever taken French or Spanish or German, that doesn't work. Uh-huh. Because right. those language, languages have very different grammatical rules, and uh, even there were there were words in the letter that had no real uh, equivalent translation into English. Uh-huh. So, um, but it did have uh, details of Melissa's murder which are kind of interesting. One says when he started talking about sex, Melissa said she had to go home. And the letter said that he then hit Melissa in the left eye, and the left side of Melissa's face was in a more advanced state of decomposition, indicating that she probably had some injury to that side of her face. Um. It also said that one of her shoes came off when she was jerked in the bushes, uh, that she was wearing red panties, and that she was in the bushes on her back. 
Uh, now, okay. in addition to the problems with the letter uh, that, that showed it wasn't written by a true Spanish-speaking writer, it was written by an English speaker translating into Spanish. They uh, they also found a list of Spanish to English word translations in Swearingen's cell, and they found his fingerprints on the list as well as his handwriting on the list. Uh-huh. And then they also found Coleman's handwriting and fingerprints on the letter and Swearingen's fingerprints on the letter. Okay. okay. So and this, so, this all transpired in about May of 99. Mm-hmm. So this seems pretty, pretty daggum uh, open and shut as far as this goes. What is the prosecution's case heading into court? Well, there was a lot of evidence found that linked Melissa Trotter to Swearingen and Swearingen to Melissa Trotter. Uh, Of course, we have the cigarettes and the red lighter that were found in the Swearingen trailer. The police found a McDonald's French fry bag and Chicken McNuggets purchased on uh, a receipt for Chicken McNuggets or a bag for, you know, container purchased on 12-8-98 at a McDonald's. There were fibers on Melissa's body from Swearingen's clothing, his truck, and the master bedroom carpet. And the fibers from the truck were from the truck seat and the headliner. There were fibers from Melissa's sweater or her jacket. It's alternately described as sweater and jacket uh, in some of the documents. Uh, Those were found on Swearingen's jacket. Melissa's hair was found in Swearingen's truck. And two of the hairs that were found there had been forcibly removed, and that was confirmed by DNA testing, that those hairs belonged to Melissa Trotter. And they also found paint from Swearingen's truck bed on uh, Melissa's pants. Then there were the pantyhose. The pantyhose for the, used as a ligature, or the leg used as a ligature, were... Uh, found to belong to a pair of pantyhose from Swearingen's trailer that had one leg cut off. And again, I think DNA testing confirmed that the wife's DNA was on the pantyhose as well as Swearingen's DNA. And the the leg from Melissa Trotter was matched up to the pantyhose based on the cuts and tears uh, between the two. And then also torn papers that belonged to Melissa, her class schedule, some insurance forms, and an envelope to mail the forms back were also found near uh, near Swearingen's mother and stepfather's home, which is where he fled on December 11th when he was fleeing police, and that was on December 17th. Okay. So that's... That, that's a that's a lot of evidence. I mean, you know, it's a lot. And then also another cellmate came in, I guess after Ronnie Coleman moved on, and um, he asked Swearingen, did you do it? And Swearingen said, fuck yeah, I did it. Now I'm trying to beat the death penalty. Right. right. So. Well, Lisa, it looks like we got our first call for the evening coming from right here in Arkansas. Great. Uh, we're Perfect. Go. 
now. Uh, sir, are you with us? Yes. Okay. Hi. Uh, welcome to Clear and Convincing. Well, thank you. I am, um, my name is LaDonna Humphrey, and I'm actually um, a filmmaker, and I've been working on a documentary for two years about a murder here in Arkansas, and we have um, been looking at Larry Swearingen for several years in this case. I've read about that. Um, what what year was Melissa Witt murdered? Um, Melissa Witt was kidnapped um, on December 1st, 1994, and we believe that she died pretty pretty immediately within within that day or two and then her body yeah. was discovered in January of 95 um Swearingen had family in Arkansas still has family in Arkansas and we were able to tie him to his grandparents house about 2 hours away from where Melissa Witt went missing um 2 mm-hmm. days before her murder okay okay how long had he well, been in Arkansas at that time? You know, he he denies, of course, that he was in Arkansas. But according to at his all. wife, um, but he he was there. His, his grandparents, they're both deceased now. Um, they both admitted that he had been in Arkansas, but they were very mm-hmm. sketchy as far as the time frame. But uh, the best that we can tell, um, based on a receipt that he. He purchased a car part um, in Clinton, Arkansas, two days before Melissa Witt was killed. Um, we know he was at least in Arkansas then. Um, as right. As far as able to time to Fort Smith, we've not been able to do that yet, although it's only two hours away. And Melissa Melissa Witt's murder is almost identical to that of Melissa Trotter. And I, I yes. believe that Larry killed both girls. I believe he's a serial killer. Um, I think according to the definition, he needs one more. He serial um, has to be three. Now, I'm not. Right. I'm not saying there's probably because if you've if you've read that letter or the excerpts from that letter, he refers to somebody by the name of Wanda. Yeah, the only Wanda that was even missing remotely, you know, close to that time period. You know, was accounted for, but you know he okay. was a uh, Swearingen traveled with his stepfather Joe Martinez. They were he was a journeyman electrician, and he traveled with Joe up and down the Eastern Seaboard. Um, there are many other murders that Swearingen is being looked at in, but that doesn't mean you know obviously necessarily that he did it. But he is being looked at, and I, I mean I firmly believe there are other people that he killed. I just oh I I you know, I don't doubt that I I don't doubt that at all. Um, we I, I don't know if you had heard, but because of his little uh, scheme with Anthony Shore, which we'll get into later, uh, they are now doing some DNA testing. Right. And so hopefully, uh, his DNA will turn up somewhere and get into a database. And then they can use that to try to identify him. Because I don't know if he's ever given a DNA sample to any kind of DNA database. 
Yeah, he because he's on death row and because of some of the new laws. Oh, passed, they do, yeah. Definitely. That's they true. They have to do that. But I have they really entered it in CODIS? Yes. Okay, it's in, it's in CODIS. Okay, well, mm-hmm. that was a thought. But, you know, as far as the DNA testing, you know, it's a shame that they never did test the, you know, the rape kit. They didn't do a lot of DNA testing in the Trotter case. Um, and I've spent hours talking to folks in Montgomery County and, you know, retired detectives who worked the case. It's an open and shut case against Swearingen. I mean, they convicted him. A jury of his peers convicted Correct. him with the amount of evidence that they had, even without the, even with a question of DNA. Because, you know, Melissa Correct. Trotter, unfortunately, um, you know, she had some sexual encounters before just in the days before she um, went missing and was murdered. And so, you know, it's very possible they're going to find DNA that doesn't belong to Larry Swearingen. That doesn't mean he didn't kill her. So I've been right, disappointed right. in that situation. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I, I've been reading the stuff about Melissa Trotter, but, you know, I the woman making the claims, I just don't know whether she's credible. And I know the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals didn't find her to be credible. Which you know, which woman? Did Lisa Roberts? Now I don't, I'm not. I haven't had a chance to look at the full original statements. I know what's in the court opinions and what's in the parties' briefs on either side of the issue. I haven't actually seen any actual police files, but I know. The defense brought up Lisa Roberts uh, to talk about, you know, Melissa calling her parents all the time so they wouldn't know what she was up to and uh, getting the calls at work and uh, all those things. But, again, I I don't know how much of what Lisa Roberts is saying is actually true and how much is just on her perception. I think I think it's you know she I think she mentions that she went to school with Larry Swearingen and knew him and I believe it was in junior high and and correct I I think it's suspicious I think that um, you know there's varying accounts from Larry Swearingen's own mouth uh, regarding Mm -hmm. his relationship about with Trotter and you know he I've watched everything I can get my hands on that has anything to do with Larry Swearingen and he is just a habitual liar and you know, we've been contacted our, our team has been contacted by many many people who actually worked on death row and had contact with Larry Swearingen and you know they all say the same thing he's a master manipulator and I think Correct. that he for anybody that could pull off the kind of scam he pulled off with Anthony Shore and and they could have very well gotten away with it. I mean, he has to be a master manipulator. Right. Well, I, you know, it's kind of funny, though, because to me it seems like he's really his own worst enemy and the best witness against himself because all of his schemes eventually blow up in his face. Oh, they do. He's not, he's you know? not very bright. You know, I've, I've had lots of correspondence with him, and he's a very bitter, angry man. And, Correct. you know, his attorneys have served me with, I'm probably at my fifth cease and desist. I'm not supposed to have any contact with Larry Swearingen. Um, oh, okay. 
that's fine at this point. I, it's, I chuckle. I mean, he's on death row. But, you know, he, right. he answered all of my letters, and he denies that he killed Trotter, and he denies that he killed Witt, um, and he believes that he'll be a free man eventually. Right, right. Yeah, and his attorneys believe that too, but unfortunately they keep presenting the same evidence and arguments to the courts, and the courts just don't find them to be that compelling. So that's you know, another part I, we're going to get into. <laughs> well, I appreciate you covering, Larry. I was very intrigued when I found out this was going to air tonight just because I you know, spent so many years of my life now working yeah. on the Melissa Witt case and really, really hope that there's justice in that case. And like I said, he, you know, Larry's our number one suspect. Yeah. Now, we would, of course, I mean, we would love for you to come back at some point in time. Uh, are you still working on the documentary? Is it? Uh, do you have a release date or any idea? We do. We've we're, we're to the point where we could release tomorrow, technically, if we wanted to. We've we've held off on two different release dates. We're we're waiting now specifically to see what happens with Swearington. Okay. Um, it's really critical. He he is one of the top suspects in the Wet case, and you know. You know, quickly. I know you need to move on for the, with the show, but you know he, you know, Wit was kidnapped. She was found almost, you know, fifty, sixty miles away from the abduction site. She was found mm-hmm. in the forest. You know, she was strangled. Everything is exactly the same as the Trotter case, and I do believe right. that it's right. quite possible that Wit was one of his first victims, and he was reliving that when he met Melissa Trotter, um, proving it is something different different but um you know shows like right. will help will help the information come out because unfortunately you don't have anything with missy witt of a videotape of him talking to missy witt for two hours or people seeing no. them together before she was abducted or anything of that nature and that no. is I, it, got- melissa trotter's murder would not have been solved but for the fact that so many people saw them together. They had video of them together at that convenience store. Right. And otherwise, exactly he would have been right. in the wind. Because I, I don't think anybody in her family or her or her social circle knew that she had even been talking to Larry Swearingen. So um, that is unfortunate. But hopefully somebody will maybe see the documentary and remember something that can place him there or place them together. Yeah, I hope um, so. That's our hope. We're going to keep being diligent. Was there any DNA or anything from her body recovery? Yeah, there's, you know, people ask me that question. But it's an open case. You can't always, really, yeah. Well, there's always DNA. And what I can say is that we have hopes in new technology. I mean, this is, this case is, you know, 20 years old. Um, Correct. You know, and, and, you know, when they, we became alerted to Larry Swearingen. It was law enforcement that was notified in 1999 because in a routine check of his cell, um, they found a piece of paper under his mattress that said Melissa Witt. It had the date and it had the lead detective's name on it. 
I find that really hard to believe that he would know that information if he wasn't somehow involved in the crime or had a special interest in the crime. So that's what alerted the Fort Smith police, and then they've been on a quest ever since to be able to tie him to Witt's murder. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, we would be glad to have you back if you uh, if you want to contact me on Facebook whenever y'all are ready to release. And, I mean, Great. we would I'm... love to have you back to talk about the case more in depth. Uh, okay. If you, you know, if you have anybody from law enforcement that gets to speak, although I know it's a, a, an open case, so there there's not a lot they can talk about. But uh, anything you know, we can do to get the word out there. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. I'll be in touch with you. I, I mean, I'd love to okay. come back. So. Great. Right. Well, thank, thank you so much. so much for calling in. Yeah, Take care. Thank you for doing the show. Bye-bye. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, Michael, well, that was the power of now? social media. That was the power yeah, of social media. This thing just keeps this thing just keeps adding new wrinkles into the swearing gentlemen and each wrinkle gets creepier and creepier. Mhm. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So we were talking about the prosecution's case and you know as I said there was a lot of evidence tying Melissa Trotter to Larry swearing in his apartment and his or his trailer and his truck. And evidence tying swearing into Melissa's body. Um, so that was basically the prosecution's case. Uh, he's the last person seen with her. She's never seen again alive. Her car is left in the parking lot at the university or the college. Um, she had plans with her family that she would not have missed. And she never called. She never sent, you know, a message or a letter or anything to anybody else after, what, 2 p.m. on December 8th, 1998. Right. So, so obviously, it's then Swearington's attorneys, you know, it's their job to try to dispute this. What are their claims in trial uh, as far as, you know, what's the defense? How are they trying to dispute this? Well, one thing that they had was that after fingernail scrapings were collected from Melissa Trotter at her autopsy, um, there was one examination, and then later on someone performed an examination and noticed some flecks of blood. And these were, you know, almost microscopic flecks of blood. They did DNA testing, and it that eliminated Swearingen and Liz Trotter as the donor of that blood. Now, that is the only thing tested for DNA. Um, probably at the time, Swearingen's attorneys didn't want to ask for DNA testing because they didn't want to risk finding Swearingen's DNA on anything. And I don't think that the state felt that they really needed DNA. Um, they don't know whether she was actually raped or not. There are, there are injuries 
or indicators of injuries that could be consistent with rape and, you know, but it doesn't, you know, prove that she was raped. Uh, It's kind of equivocal indications. Um, So they were relying on that DNA exclusion. And then Swearingen also testified. And Again, he served as the best witness that, against himself. Lisa, that was actually something that I was about to say. Isn't that kind of one of the tip, one of the uh, one of the stereotypical, you know, by the playbook no nos not to testify at your own trial because you could say something that damns yourself. When generally individuals who have that kind of sociopathic manipulative personality narcissistic personality they want to testify because they think they can con the judge, the jury the prosecutors and the gallery because they've conned their defense attorneys so you know it is something you don't want your client to do generally especially when you have somebody with a history like Swearingen's um, but if the client is bound and determined to testify, you have to let them. And right, this right. was one of those situations where he was bound and determined to testify, I think because he thought he could con and manipulate the jury. And so right off the bat, he claims he and Melissa only talked for five minutes. And nothing ever came of it. Well, of course, then he's confronted with this surveillance video showing two hours of him standing there talking to Melissa Witt. I mean, Melissa Trotter. Now I'm going to keep saying Melissa Witt. Um, And um, so that's, you know, strike one. Um, I think the letter he said that he got the information from materials that his attorney had given him. And he was just writing that letter, doing that to get his attorneys to look for alternate suspects. Strike two, because the jury didn't find that to be credible. And I don't have, I wish I had his entire trial testimony, but I haven't ever come across it online. Uh, Because I would love to read it word for word. But those are just a couple of the highlights. And you know he had he had a history of burglaries. He had a history of violence against women. I mean, you know, there was just loads and loads of fodder for cross examination. The prosecution couldn't necessarily bring out a lot of the details in the guilt innocence phase. But if he said, "I would never hit a woman." They can say, well, didn't weren't you, you know, arrested for beating your wife, or wasn't there a domestic violence call to your house, and you were arrested for hitting your wife? So, um, one of these days, I'm going to find that trial testimony. Well, good, good. That that that'd be something that I feel like I don't know whether I want to read it because it'd probably just be make me angrier. But obviously, Swearingen is found guilty, and we move on to the penalty phase. 
Was it something that, you know, we knew right off the bat that they were going straight for the uh, death penalty? Uh, well, yeah, the uh, in Texas, when you um, when you abduct and murder and probably rape a woman, yeah, that's going to be a capital murder, definitely. Right, especially. In- and so, yeah, they he had he had been charged with capital murder because of the abduction and rape. And to find him guilty of capital murder, they only had to find him guilty of one or the other. They didn't necessarily have to find him guilty of both, although I believe that they did. Um, and abducting a person, it's kind of funny. You'll see uh, cases where a defense attorney will say the victim went with him. That's, you can't abduct somebody if they go along of their own free will. Well, that's kind of true, but not really. If she goes with him and says, I want to go home now, and he says, no, you're not, that becomes an, an abduction. If he uses threats or force or violence to prevent her from leaving, that's an abduction. If somebody comes into my house and threatens me and, and beats me, and prevents me from leaving my house to get help, that's a kidnapping or abduction. Because they are uh, impeding my ability to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. So, uh, and in the penalty phase, they showed the pattern. This was a pattern of, of Swearingen's going back to a girlfriend that he kidnapped drove her around at gunpoint through the Sam Houston National Forest to a spot within a mile of where Melissa's body was found. And he'd also beaten and raped her when she broke up with him. Right. And then right. A, a living girlfriend, he beat and raped her when she talked about going to visit her family in Los Angeles. And then oh, he wow. bound and gagged her, locked her in a closet, made her put on crotchless pantyhose, and then raped her again. So he's got a thing with pantyhose. Right. Which is another, you know, another thing. It That's kind of like a signature. That's something he needs to do to feel the crime is, uh, for the crime to give him what he needs from it. Uh-huh. And then his first wife, Melissa Cates, he, you know, he had a history of being and strangling her during their first marriage. Uh, she raped him. He raped her multiple times while they were married. Because when a woman says no and you could, you know, you have sex with her anyway, that's rape. No means no. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then another, I think after she left him, he lured her to his truck by saying one of their kids was sick. And then he beat her and abducted her and raped her. Another day, he followed her home from work, shot at her car, tried to run her off the road. When she stopped, he punched her, put a knife to her throat, raped her, and then abducted her. 
Right. And I believe the right. the woman he was married to at the time of Melissa Trotter's murder also testified against him. Uh, and she was pregnant at the time Trotter was murdered. Melissa Trotter was murdered. So he was a very violent and aggressive uh man who got off on abducting people. Right, absolutely, absolutely. So we move on. He's obviously sentenced to death here, and then that triggers the direct appeal. Anything of note here in the direct appeal before we go to halftime in the break? No, not really. The only thing, there was a dissent on the direct appeal because uh, one of the one of the judges felt that the capital murder charge should not have been sustained because of kind of a weak case as far as abduction and rape went. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no doubt that he murdered Melissa Trotter. But the the case as far as proving abduction and rape were more tenuous. Right, right. Okay. okay. Uh, but well, the, the direct appeal, the conviction was affirmed. Right on, right on. Well, Lisa, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back here with more clear and convincing as we continue to discuss the state of Texas versus Larry Swearingen. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, uh, yeah. All right. 
Okay, I think we're back now. You back, Michael? Yes, ma'am. We sure are. All right. I believe we left off at the state writs. We just got done with the direct appeal, which obviously the uh, conviction was upheld, and he stayed on death row. What is going on with these state writs? Well, he filed his first writ in 2002. And since that time, he has filed 13 writs with the Texas courts. That's just in state court. Holy crap. Uh, Well, let's start out with this. uh, Let's go ahead and start out. You said he's uh, filed 13 state writs. Uh, have they all pretty much If I glean this earlier They've all pretty much been the same thing Well correct They've pretty much been denied The basis of The state writs Primarily Has been entomological Evidence that uh, Swearingen argues Proves he couldn't have killed Melissa Trotter and histological evidence, which is examination of tissues from her body taken at autopsy, which prove he couldn't have killed Melissa Trotter. Because the medical examiner's estimate of the time of death interval at the time of the trial was 25 days, which would be consistent with her disappearance on December 8th. Right. And the discovery right. of the body on January 2nd. Um, he's also argued that people searched the forest and didn't find the body, but uh, there's also been testimony at, at different times that uh, unless you, the people who found her body were hunters looking for lost weapons or a lost weapon. And they only found the body because they stumbled up on it. Uh, and the searches, none right. of the searches were ever actually where Melissa's body were found. They were several yards or several feet away. Because the San Houston National Forest is a huge, uh, a huge area. Right, right, absolutely. So, um, now some of those writs have been remanded to the trial court for hearings. And that has happened three times, uh, four times, five times, rather. The the writs were remanded back to the trial court. The trial court had held hearings, and Swearingen had an opportunity to present his evidence. Uh, but they were ultimately denied or dismissed as uh, not meeting the requirements for successive petitions. Right on, right on. Well, I mean, pretty much we realize what's going on with these writs, but I do have to ask about this 2007 affidavit by uh, Dr. Carter. What's the deal on this? Uh, Okay, during one of the state or federal writs, because he's filed two writs with the federal courts, he obtained an affidavit from Dr. Joy Carter, who was the original medical examiner. 
And in that affidavit, uh, based on the histological evidence, she indicated that she agreed with his experts that uh, the time of death interval was something less than 25 days. There were a couple of problems with the affidavit. First of all, in the affidavit, it did not recant her original trial testimony about time of death. And her time of death estimate at trial was based on the external appearance of the body, which included a fungus on some of the body surfaces that is a fungus that grows in a damp, dark, cold, cool environment and takes time to grow. It's not going to grow in two or three days. It's not going to grow in a week. And then also the stomach contents. Uh, The information they had was that Melissa consumed potatoes and chicken McNuggets and some kind of vegetable on December 8th, and that was found in her stomach. Stomach contents usually empty after about four hours. Right, so, so she died within about four hours of eating. She would have died within a couple of hours of being, of having eaten. And um, so, if she's held by somebody until after swearing is arrest, they would have had to feed her nothing but chicken McNuggets and potatoes. Right. Because so it looks, it looks like after the second, uh, it looks like after the second uh, federal writ. It looks like did they kind of change uh, tactics here and go for the DNA testing? No, he has requested DNA testing uh, in 2005, 2009, 2013, 2014, and he was actually granted DNA testing in 2013 and 2014 by the judge who was sitting in uh, the trial court in Montgomery County. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, however, reversed and remanded the trial court order because Swearingen didn't meet the, the requirements of Chapter 64, which governs DNA testing in Texas. Right, 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 okay. So the 2012 uh, hearing, Dr. Carter gives uh, testimony. What's the hearing about? The 2012 hearing was on uh, one of the writs that was remanded in the state court. And uh, she testified essentially another problem with the affidavit is that the attorneys for swearing and prepared the affidavit She didn't prepare it. She received it. She discussed it with the attorneys. She says she made changes and then signed the affidavit and had it notarized and sent it back. Her changes were not made to the body of the affidavit. So the attorneys submitted the affidavit they prepared in spite of the changes. And that's a big problem because when you when the witness is testifying and they get the affidavit and they say, well, no, I changed paragraph three, it should have said this, the affidavit is no longer their testimony, it's yours. 
Right, right. And, you know, I've had that discussion with the attorneys I work with on a couple of occasions where a witness made changes and they didn't want to make the changes. Right, and okay. And I said, well, you, you have to because that's what their testimony is going to be. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. You know? it, like you said, it no longer is their testimony. It now becomes, you know, a convoluted, you know, statement of the facts. Right. So I want to go through these execution dates one by one, and, I, you know, he's had several. I believe there's five here we have listed. And I want to know, you know, why they were stayed, how close he came, and so on and so forth. So let's start out with the first one, January 24th, 2007. How close did he come, and uh, how close did they come to, you know, carrying out his sentence, and uh, what did was the stay for? On January 24th, 2007 date, on January 22nd, 2007, he submitted his fourth writ to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They stayed the execution on January 23rd and remanded to the trial court for hearing. Right. Okay. Um, And then ultimately denied that writ. Which then I'm assuming is what brought up the uh, January 27th, 2009 execution date, correct? Correct, because after the fourth writ, on the 22nd, they they denied the fourth writ on January 16th, 2008. On the 22nd, he filed a fifth writ. Okay, okay. So uh, Which was again remanded and denied. The 2009 date, mm-hmm. he filed a he filed a request for a second writ with the federal court on January okay. so around January 26, 2009, and the Fifth Circuit stayed the execution and granted him leave to file a successive writ. So is that the one where uh, the doctor testified? That is uh, that is one of the ones I believe there was an evidentiary hearing in federal court okay. on that successive okay. writ. But so I'm not I'm not positive about that, but or that I think what happens is actually the federal court requests the state court to have the hearings and then give them the record. Okay. Okay. So how about August 18th, 2011? Uh, He filed another writ on July 5th and uh, actually two writs. His 10th writ on July 5th and his 11th writ on July 11th. Again, the uh, Criminal Court of Appeals, Court of Criminal Appeals, uh, stayed his execution and remanded back to the trial court for hearings. So, okay. you know, we okay. hear that we hear that it's so difficult for these innocent people and and the courts don't give them a fair hearing and uh, uh the judges just rubber stamp everything. But, 
you know, Swearingen's case is a prime example of how he's gotten every benefit of the doubt when he raises these claims. Absolutely. It seems like every time he raises a claim, his execution date gets uh, gets correct. And and if you'll if you'll notice, he's raising claims a month before his execution date. He's not raising them. You know, he had all of 2010, and he didn't raise anything after his uh, state writ. Correct. Second, they get a date. They raise something else. Absolutely. Just trying to slow the process. The 27th of February, 2013. That was stayed on uh, January 31st, 2013. And that was one of the DNA uh, testing requests that was granted by the trial court. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So, Um, obviously, it got stayed. Right. So the last one that pretty much got him till uh, November of last year, and he got a date of November 16th of 2017. Mm-hmm. Same thing. How close did he come, and what stopped it? Well. What stopped it basically was the the conspiracy with Anthony Shore. Uh, in okay. July of 2017, uh, the authorities were searching Anthony Shore's cell because he also had an execution date in October of 2017. Mm-hmm. And they were anticipating a claim of a mental disease or defect that prevented his execution. So they were searching his cell. And Mm -hmm. they found a folder with materials from Swearingen's case in his cell. And so they contacted the Montgomery County authorities because Shore's case is out of Harris County in Texas. They contacted Montgomery County and Montgomery County needed time to investigate it. Now, the real the reason the, the execution date of November 16th was stayed was because there was a clerical error in the uh, warrant, the issuance of the of the uh, death warrant. There's Absolutely. Administrative law that requires it be you know issued a certain time period prior to the date of execution. And okay. there was some clerical error in uh, Swearingen's case, and I believe there was another execution that had the same problem, where the uh, date, the issue date, was not conforming to that requirement, and so they they had to stay it. They also needed to investigate the the conspiracy was sure. Awesome. As well. uh, so we talk about the conspiracy with Shore. Is that because Shore was trying to help uh, Swearingen with his case, or what's Correct. the deal there? And these 2017 updates as we bring us closer to current date. Yeah, Anthony Shore uh, had become friends with Swearingen on death row. Anthony Shore was known as a tourniquet killer. Uh, he was arrested in 2003 after 
his DNA. He had to, he was convicted or pled guilty to molesting his daughters. So he mm-hmm. had to register as a sex offender and give a DNA sample. In 2003, his DNA came back. Uh, with a murder of a woman in 1994. Okay. And so he was arrested and ended up confessing to four murders and one rape in the Houston area. Wow. That's big. So was, uh, was she one of them? No, in 2003, he said nothing about Melissa Trotter. Okay. And, again, he was in Harris County in Houston. Melissa Trotter was in Montgomery County in Willis. I don't know if you've ever been to Houston and that part of Texas, but they are not close to each other. I mean, it's a hike to go from Houston it's a hike to go from Houston to Montgomery County. So it wouldn't be, you know, a walk in the park for him to have been able to do any of this. And that's why no. I'm assuming he recanted. Well, no, I mean, and when he was initially arrested in 2003, he never said a word about Melissa Trotter. He never said, oh, and I killed a girl in Willis, Texas, or anything like that. He did confess to the murders he committed. And he confessed right. to a rape that he committed. Um, but uh, he never said a word about Melissa Trotter's murder, and it wasn't until 2017 that he thought about doing it because he did want to help swearing it out, and he was going to be executed anyway. Uh, but he apparently changed his mind and decided not to do it. Okay. And so when okay. when he was questioned, he told the Texas Rangers, that he had nothing to do with Trotter's murder. He and Swearingen had contemplated conspiring for him to give a false confession, but they had parted ways, and he decided not to take the fall for Swearingen. Right, right. So then he recants. What's the deal with the uh, stay of execution? That's where uh, we are today, the last execution date, correct? Correct, correct. Um because of and and this is this is a prime example of Larry Swearingen's manipulation, and it's probably the only time that he will ever be successful at it. the The conspiracy with Shore ended up meaning that the state was going to have to do DNA testing. Now, at one time, they did want to do DNA testing. And it was Swearingen that didn't want testing. So, so um, now he thinks that this is going to stop everything. So, hey, why don't we go ahead and throw a Hail Mary here? Correct. Well, they, he wasn't going to get DNA testing. He didn't qualify under the law in Texas. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the, um, the current statute because there are several factors that you have to – to meet and prove in order to be entitled to DNA testing in Texas. And this is actually true in just about any state that, you know, they have statutes governing DNA testing. 
but you have to meet certain requirements. And one of those requirements is that exclusionary results of the DNA testing would have to alter the outcome of your trial. When you take the exclusionary result with all of the evidence of guilt, The, the courts have to, you know, feel that a, a jury reviewing everything would be unable to, to convict you, that there would be reasonable okay. doubt. And in Swearingen's case, okay. when we look at the wealth of evidence against him without any DNA, excluding him from DNA is not going to change the outcome of the trial. And we know this because the blood flakes found from Melissa Trotter's fingernail scrapings excluded Larry Swearingen, and the jury convicted him. Absolutely. So I see here we got a search of a lake. What lake were they searching, and what were they looking for? Apparently, um, uh, Shore claimed that he knew where some of the evidence was uh, related to the Trotter murder, probably because Swearingen had told him it was in the lake. And so they did go to the lake to try and search it, and they didn't find anything. So um, that, you know, that probably was a red herring. Because in that Spanish letter, Swearingen included things that, that weren't accurate. But I think sometimes people, guilty people do that to test authorities to see what they know or to give themselves an out so that in an interview they can say, well, if I, knew, you know, if I really committed that murder, I would have known this. But why did I say that in my confession? Kind of like we saw with Jesse McKelly in the time in the West Memphis 3 case. Right, right. So, um, I mean, at this point, it looks like he's running out of, you know, real estate here, running away from this execution date. Does he really have anything left, or is this pretty much his last shot? You know, I I think that uh, the DNA testing is pretty much going to be the last gasp for him. Because even if the DNA testing eliminates him, there's still just too much evidence uh, against him, the circumstances under which Melissa disappeared. The fact that nobody saw or heard from her after December 8th. Um, as one of the, the Court of Criminal Appeals judges put it, she didn't disapparate from Earth and go into suspended animation somewhere for for 20 days and then drop down into the Sam Houston National Forest. Right. It's just right. for anybody else and for anybody else to have killed her, they would have had access to had to have access to Swearingen's trailer because there's evidence from the trailer on Melissa's body. Swearingen's truck because her hair is in the truck. And that is confirmed by DNA. Uh they would have had to have access or to have fed her nothing but chicken McNuggets and French fries 
because that's what her stomach contents had when her body was found. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, her clothes didn't look like they had been worn for two weeks or a month or nearly a month when her body was found. They were in the same condition they were in on December 8th. So she hadn't been wearing the same clothing for 25 days or 20 days. Uh, And that's another problem with the time of death interval opinions that Swearingen's been presenting because none of the experts agree on a time. Uh, The entomological experts say it had to be December 16th to December 18th or that she couldn't have died before December 16th to 18th. Uh, The histological evidence, uh, they say, could be within a day or so of her body being found. Or uh, no sooner than December 23rd of of 1998. And so they don't agree on it. It was, it had to have been December fifteenth, and they all say it. It was December fifteenth. Another problem is none of them, none of these experts has reconciled the exterior or external findings with their opinions based on histological. And even one of their own experts said the pattern or the the state of decomposition on Melissa Trotter's body was unusual because there was decomposition consistent with 25 days on some parts of her body, but then her internal organs, the decomposition wasn't consistent with that long. And that may have also been due to the conditions in the Sam Houston National Forest, which was cold, damp, and wet or cold, damp, and dark, which may have impeded some of the internal decomposition. Right, right. So we're pretty much up to date, Lisa, uh, as far as this goes. I guess we're sitting here waiting on DNA evidence, and then, uh, you know, pretty much execution's back on. Is that correct? Uh, what will have to happen once the DNA testing uh, results come back, there will likely be a hearing in the trial court in Montgomery County. And then the judge will render an opinion uh, based on that DNA evidence. Right on, right on. Uh, both, both parties will be able to appeal that to the Court of Criminal Appeals. And so it's, they won't be, the state won't be able to request another execution date until that process completes. So he's, his attorneys have bought him another probably two to three years. Well, damn. I mean, if yeah. anything, they're trying to run the clock out on him. But, you know, they may be running out of real estate here. But, Lisa, I Correct. guess that's pretty much it. Is there anything else you got on Mr. Swearingen? I know we uh, talked with that lady earlier in the broadcast about uh, about some 
stuff he may be involved in here in Arkansas, uh, are they actually right. them, or have they pretty much, you know, wiped their hands of it because of the fact that he's on death row? Well, no, the impression I get, I think that they are um, – I think that they are investigating and they are trying to tie him. Uh, one of the factors that's working against him is the amount of time that's passed since uh, the murder. And the fact that they don't have the evidence tying him to Melissa Witt that Texas had tying him to Melissa Trotter. Uh, but if there's DNA from Melissa Witt, and DNA from Swearingen comes up in this case, uh, hopefully they will be able to uh, connect them together that way with the DNA. And hopefully well, any sure other... that would be disclosure at least for that family. Yeah, because that, that that's very hard. We have a family friend uh, whose daughter was murdered back in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, it it was kind of a similar situation. She was abducted. Her vehicle was found in one area. Her body was found several miles away in a different parish. And the case has never been solved. And it is, it's a very difficult thing for her family because we're coming up close to 30 years. Right, right, right. Well, Lisa, I think we're going to go ahead and get on out of here. Uh, What are we talking about next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about Al Story Simon. Uh, He was a gentleman in, he had lived in Illinois, but he was living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And a group of Innocence Project people decided that he was the real killer in a double murder that happened in Chicago in in the early 1980s. And so they went to Mr. Simon. They coerced and or tricked him into making a false confession. He was convicted, or rather he pled guilty, and sent to prison in Illinois and then spent 15 years trying to get himself out of a bad situation. So uh, it's going to be an interesting case. We're, we're going to be talking with uh, Martin Preeb. He's the author of Crooked City, a book about the Simon case and the framing of an innocent man by a Northwestern University Innocence Project group. Right on. Well, I can't wait for that, but Lisa, I think it's time to go ahead and get on out of here. I certainly hope you have a great week, and I can't wait to talk to you next I'll, week. All right, you're gonna let me. You're gonna let me do my little outro. I oh, work very hard on these things. <laughs> Don't I always? All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at Clear and Convincing Podcast. Dot wordpress.com or you can follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Again, join us next week for Episode 9, State of Illinois versus Alstory Simon. Uh, again, we'll be talking to Martin Freed. He's the author of Crooked City, 
uh, which talks about Simon's case and the framing of an innocent man by an innocence project group. Y'all have a great week, and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Night, Michael. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night. The party's over. And tomorrow starts the same old thing again. What a crazy, crazy...